Welcome to this Forthright Radio for March 17, 2021. I'm Joy LeClaire. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is multiple award-winning journalist and author Carl Zimmer. In addition to writing for the New York Times, Discover, National Geographic, The Atlantic, Wired, and others, Carl Zimmer is the author of 14 books on science, from his first in 1998, At the Water's Edge, Fish with Fingers, Whales with Legs, and How Life Came Ashore and Then Went Back to Sea, to his latest book, which we discuss today, Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive, just published by Dutton. He claims to be the only writer after whom a species of tapeworm has been named, Acanthobothrium zimmeri. We spoke with Carl Zimmer on March 15th, 2021. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Carl Zimmer. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Carl, you've been a journalist covering science for many decades now, and you note a certain reluctance among the scientists you have interviewed to give a definite answer to the seemingly simple question of what it means to be alive, and that it has mystified you because, as you write, quote, what it means to be alive has flowed through four centuries of scientific history like an underground river, end of your quote. And your latest book, Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive, just released on March 9th, 2021 by Dutton, is especially timely because the entire world has been thrown into pandemic turmoil by a coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, something that scientists cannot agree on as to whether it is alive, half alive, or not. We'll get to that argument later in our interview. But first, let's step back and take a look at the history of the question. These days, we tend to take certain facts about how human bodies function as a given, for example. But actually, our knowledge is relatively recent. Would you please remind us of what has been involved and how our understanding has emerged over time? Sure. I think that if we just focus on what's happened since the scientific revolution in the 1600s, first it became clear that our bodies are are made up of smaller components, which eventually became recognized as cells thanks to the invention of microscopes. And inside those cells were different sorts of molecules. And the revolution in chemistry in the 1700s made us appreciate that you know, our bodies are made of the same elements that make up a mountain or some other feature of the world. We just have different combinations of elements, different proportions, and they form different kinds of molecules. And eventually that gave rise to sort of the biochemical view of life. And then on top of that, we've been learning a lot about how it is that one generation looks like the last generation. In other words, what are the genes that how are genes passed on through the generations? 
But all the while, people have had this nagging question in the back of their head. What what distinguishes living things from non-living things? So for a while, chemists could say, well, we see all these weird chemicals like, uh, say, hemoglobin only in living things. So that must mean that there's something distinctive about chemistry in living things. But then chemists started to be able to synthesize all sorts of organic molecules just in their lab from scratch. And so then it became really harder to to make that case. And there's been a tension between what you could call the mechanistic view of life and what was known for a long time as vitalism, that there must be some vital force, as some people called it, that was above and beyond what chemistry could explain. We're still in that struggle. There isn't a, a clear-cut theory of life that everyone agrees on yet. And so I think by understanding the centuries of struggle that, that scientists have had, we can appreciate why it is so difficult to actually say what life is or to deal with these cases like viruses and whether they're alive or not. This is not, it seems like it should be simple, but the more you get to know life, the more you realize it cannot be simple. In your book, Life's Edge, you talk about experimental biology and the history of that, and, and you write so well, Carl. I, I very much appreciate how readable your books are. And you talk about an early 400 years ago or so, experiments done to demonstrate and deduce that in order for humans to be alive, the bare minimum is you have to have lungs, you have to have a heart, and you have to have a brain. And you could extend that to animal biology. And your book documents attempt after attempt to define life. What are the bare minimum necessities for life? So we've got, you've got to have the heart, the lung, the brain. And now recently in the news is the sea slug, which can sever its body from its head, so heart, lung from brains, and regenerate itself. Do you have any comments on that before we proceed? <laughs> yeah, no, it is It is a, a, a wild update on this basic observation about life. So the, the scientist you're referring to, his name was Xavier Bichat. Um, he was a French physician, an anatomist, and he did all sorts of very grisly studies. Like he would, he would examine the decapitated heads of freshly executed criminals, for example, or do all sorts of things, to, very cruel things to dogs. But his goal was actually to help human welfare by, by understanding death in order to understand life. And basically, he, he came of the view that life was, he defined life as, as the sum of, of the ways in which death was resisted. And so that we died because we could no longer resist death. And he recognized, importantly, that for humans, and also for dogs and other similar animals, we have what he called a tripod, sort of a three-part system, the brain, the lungs, and the heart. And we depended on all three. So he really had this great view of life as as not just like one thing, but an integration of de- interdependent things. So if any of them, any of those legs of the tripod were taken away, life could no longer be sustained. So if the lungs were damaged and could no longer supply air, then soon the heart stopped and the brain stopped. And likewise, if you stop the heart, then the lung couldn't keep going on its own. 
the irony there was within our own experience, as I write about in Life's Edge, is that what happens when you can replace one of those parts? We had a situation starting in the 1950s where people who had terrible brain injuries could continue and would die on their own could be kept alive by being put on a ventilator and the rest of their body could keep going. So essentially we're replacing a leg in the tripod, but there's been a big debate. Like, is that really life? Maybe it's life. If you define life in terms of the metabolism and cells or the homeostasis that gives our bodies an inner balance. But if you think about life as requiring that integration in the brain, then that's not life. And we have defined brain death as death formally in this country and many other countries. So these slugs now that have just been reported just take this to a crazy different level because they can just drop their entire body except for their head. And from their head, they can regrow all their other parts, including their hearts and nervous system and circulatory system and just be a fully formed slug again. It's it's co- quite astonishing. And it really does like force us to think about life at a deeper level. There are ways to sustain life and regenerate life that we haven't really reckoned with. You know, in my book, I write about the things called brain organoids, which I think really challenge some of our assumptions about life, especially human life, because they basically what you can do is you can take a skin cell from somebody, you know, we could take one of your skin cells and put in a dish, hit it with some chemicals, and it would actually turn into a progenitor brain cell, which would then start dividing into other brain cells, into neurons, and eventually form a little clump of hundreds of thousands, maybe over a million neurons that can then start producing electrical activity that looks a lot like brainwaves. So these brain organoids, as they're called, they're really important scientifically just to do research to understand the brain, but they also are a challenge. What are these things? Do do we consider them alive? Do they have the hallmarks of human life? They are human brain cells that are doing a lot of the things that human brain cells do together. So we're going to have more of these these tough, fascinating questions going forward. Let's also add that that very interesting part of your book, you do mention that the cultures of these cells in no way replicates the human brain, which is an extremely complex, interactive organism. But... I can I can feel a little bit of fear rising up in myself, speculating where this might lead. So, yeah, it's just one of many very interesting things that you report in your book, Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive, Carl Zimmer. Well, let's get to some of the attributes that have been identified about what it does mean to be alive what you call hallmarks. Why don't you say what you think the generalized attributes are for life, and then we'll talk about them specifically. When you talk to biologists or read the scientific literature, 
people may not agree on on an actual on a precise definition of life, but you do find that the same hallmarks just keep coming up again and again and again, and and understandably so. And so I start the book as as a journey of, from life in its familiar sense out into the weirder edges of it, and so I explore these hallmarks. The hallmarks uh, include metabolism, homeostasis, reproduction, intelligence, and evolution. So five hallmarks. And metabolism is uh, the uh, ability to draw in material from your environment and turn that into energy that you can use and building blocks for, for building yourself and, and your descendants. So metabolism is it's remarkably standard from species to species. Our fuel is a molecule called ATP, and you can find that same fuel in you know, a jellyfish or a sequoia tree, uh, a mushroom. Uh, e. coli uses uh, ATP, so it's like a universal fuel. That being said, metabolism takes some weird extremes in different species. And in the book, I write a lot about pythons because I just find them really like metabolically amazing because to get their fuel, they eat the, as we do. But, you know, we chew our food and have little meals. They will go weeks without eating anything and then suddenly just eat animals whole they can eat half their own weight easily at once and then they have then they digest it over the course of a, of a few days and that di- that actual digestion and absorption is just an amazing sort of metabolic alchemy it actually takes a huge amount of energy to get the energy out of their food because they have to break down these whole animals very quickly uh, and they, their metabolic rate actually shoots up to the same level as a galloping racehorse. A racehorse will have that metabolic rate for maybe a couple minutes and then is exhausted. But that python just lying there with that big lump of food in its gut can ha- keep that rate going for days. So it's kind of astonishing. And so if you want to really appreciate metabolism at its most magnificent, for me, it's it's a python. Let me interject what I also found amazing is not only do their metabolic rates go up just amazingly but their organs grow you write that their small intestines double mass overnight as do their liver and kidneys their heart grows 40 percent while they're doing this digestion then when they're done all these things reverse yeah it's it's amazing I mean, when the scientist I wrote about, Stephen Secor, first discovered these things, he would take photographs of what he was seeing in these snakes to pathologists. He would show them the intestines when they're like totally exploded in size in anticipation of the meal that's coming down from the stomach and and then show the same intestines after they were done with their work and all. And, these intestinal cells, they have these long finger-like projections that shoot out into these incredible lengths in anticipation of food coming, and then they just die back. And he would show these pictures to these pathologists uh, at UCLA, where he was working at the time, and they just they were like, wow, whatever this animal is, is really sick. 
because, you know, it just, it was just like, it's their intestines were just dying. And he'd say, no, these are healthy. These are perfectly healthy animals. And they'd just be like, you're crazy. This, this, this is, this is, this is dying tissue. And just these snakes have evolved this astonishing ability to go through this process of life and death almost um, every time they eat. We could learn a lot from them. There are a lot of potential secrets that might someday have implications for medicine. Like if you're trying to grow organs for transplants, it might help to to see how snakes suddenly expand their t- these tissues in a, in a completely safe way. You know, they have this huge surge of sugar and cholesterol into their bodies from their food. I mean, it's overwhelming. And so the the question is, well, why don't they get heart disease? Well, you know, why why don't they go into a, a kind of diabetic shock? Like what 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 secrets do they have to buffer this huge metabolic tidal wave that hits their body? So there's a lot of mysteries just in these few species of of snakes that eat in this incredible way. Okay, so pythons, they're obviously doing well enough to be a problem in the Everglades. They are at least vertebrates, slime molds. What do we learn from slime molds about life? So first, let me just describe slime molds for people who aren't as familiar with them as they might be with snakes even though we probably encounter slime molds a lot more often than snakes. So slime molds are these blobby, fungus-like residents of the forest floor. So you might be walking along in the summer on a hike and see some weird sort of splattered, colorful substance on the forest floor on a log, and that is a slime mold. They go by such lovely names as dog's vomit. That's one kind of slime mold, and it's really accurate, <laughs> visually speaking. And so these these things can get to be as big as about a placemat. And and if you look carefully at them, you can actually see that these these sort of tentacles that make up their network can be pulsating because the sort of the, the contents, uh, the cellular contents are sort of streaming through these tentacles in, in this sort of uh, almost like a circulatory system. And you can see these things with the naked eye. Each one is just one cell, it's just one gigantic cell. It's filled with many, many, many copies of DNA, but there's no division between cells that make it up. It's just one giant cell that just keeps getting bigger as it eats, and then it can break apart blow off and start to grow again. So those are slime molds. They're amazing. And even beyond that, they're amazing to scientists because they can take a little bit of a slime mold into their lab and watch them grow and move around in a dish. So if you put a little bit of slime mold on one side of a dish and you put a little bit of oatmeal on the other side, Over the course of hours, that slime mold will extend tentacles out and find the oatmeal because it can sort of taste its surroundings and it will envelop it and it will feed on the bacteria that are growing on the oatmeal. So it turns out that you can actually like get these slime molds to do all sorts of weirdly intelligent things to find the oatmeal. You can make a maze with you know lots of dead ends and intersections and so on 
put the slime mold on the entrance of the maze and put the oatmeal on the other side of it, and it will make its way through the maze. It will find the shortest route through the maze. They can form networks between different sources of food in very sophisticated ways. They can find the shortest overall distance between different sources of food just so that they can get the most food with the least amount of effort and, you know, may produce the least amount of, of themselves. So they're almost like mathematicians. And so, you know, so one reason that scientists really love these is that they are learning about their environment and making choices about how to behave in their, in that environment in incredibly sophisticated ways with no brain, no nervous system, it's just one cell. And so a lot of scientists are really who study slime mold feel like they're kind of they're getting at something fundamental about life. One scientist described it to me as a, as a kind of intelligence. So it's not the intelligence that will make somebody do well on SAT test, but it's a basic intelligence about how to respond to your environment and to make a choice that is better than random. That's sort of the essence of intelligence for some scientists. And it's a hallmark of life. You know, living things do not just do things randomly. They, they're biased towards survival. And slime molds are just an incredible example of that. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the section on slime molds, Carl Zimmer. So that's information gathering. Um, one person said that that's the ability to respond to changing environment that helps to keep an organism alive. That's one of the hallmarks of life. Then reproduction. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is maybe one of the most familiar hallmarks of life, that living things are things that can reproduce. That's a little tricky for a lot of different reasons. For one thing, there are a lot of different weird ways to reproduce. We think of ourselves and, and how parents produce children. Slime molds can have sex and mingle their genes together. Two, two slime molds can come together and, and merge their genes. On the other hand, they can just send off bits of themselves that can grow somewhere else. That's another way of, of reproducing. Bacteria just are single cells that grow and then divide, grow and divide. And there are weird ways of reproducing or, or not reproducing that kind of raise the question, well, okay, is this a hallmark or not? So a single person cannot reproduce by themselves. <laughs> at least in the in the in the regular way without the help of some kind of reproductive technology so but we would still consider that person alive and so some people said like well okay when we say that you have to be able to reproduce to be alive what we're saying is that you have to be able to uh, potentially reproduce with another member of your species well, I just told you about bacteria that don't need another member of their species. And then there are actually like even animals that defy this in a, in a interesting ways. My favorite I talk about in the book is a fish called the Amazon molly, which is found in the southwest of the United States and in Mexico. So the Amazon molly, just a little fish, seems pretty ordinary, but it's not. A couple hundred thousand years ago, the whole species formed when two other species of fish interbred and they produce these hybrids and now these hybrids gain the ability to they're, they're all females and they can produce daughters clones of themselves without 
any genetic material from a father. Now, what makes them particularly weird is that they can't just do that solo. They actually have to mate with a male from one of those parental species. So they mate with the male, and and the male sperm gets inside of these eggs. The sperm then get shredded into pieces, so they do not contribute to the the fish, uh, to their offspring. But they need that as a trigger to get the whole process going, to get the eggs starting to develop. So even as a species, they can't reproduce on their own. They're they're sexual parasites, as it were. But if you saw them swimming around in, in a river, you'd say, yeah, of course these are alive. But if we really drill down and try to get you to, to explain why they're alive, um, we get into these fascinating problems. And they're called Amazon mollies, not referring to the river Amazon, but to the fact that they're all female, as you point out in your book. We're speaking with journalist Carl Zimmer. His latest book is Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. And then the last of the hallmarks that you use in your book, Carl, is evolution. They have to be able to evolve Talk about that, please. Well, everything around us is the product of evolution. We are all branches on the tree of life. And so anything that you see around you has the capacity to evolve. Now, Darwin saw evolution as a very, very slow process that uh, you couldn't actually watch happen. He kind of thought of evolution as happening on the scale of mountains forming and that's certainly true that you get long-term changes happening over millions of years. That's how we ended up with a, a very large human brain, for example, that, that took a while. But on the other hand, you can actually observe evolution happening in, in a matter of weeks or even days in some cases because we can study bacteria. Darwin did not really know about microbes in the way that we do now. But a single bacterium can produce a billion offspring in a day under the right conditions. So some of those those offspring will have mutations, and some of those mutations may help them to thrive and do better than their ancestors. And so if you keep re- repeating challenges, the same challenges again and again on microbes, they will evolve in some astonishing ways. In the book, I write about trying my hand at this. I'm actually running an evolution experiment and under the helpful guidance of some scientists who really know what they're doing. And yeah, I could sort of see some bacteria called Pseudomonas take on some weird changes over the course of just a few days as they were evolving to form slimy layers on on little plastic beads that I had in my test tubes. What's important is that this is not just something that's just intellectually fascinating, but it's really important medically because there are kinds of this bacteria that actually can invade the lungs of people with cystic fibrosis and kill them. And so if we can understand how these bacteria adapt to the lungs the way they adapt to petri dishes, there are possible ways to to interfere with that evolution and to save people's lives. And that research is going on right now. I really liked what Wittgenstein had to say about even 
getting hung up on the question of what is life. Would you share with us his insight so that it could kind of let us back off of that? Scientists actually have been asking this question, what is life, for quite a long time. I found a passage from a a German physician named Georg Stahl uh, in the early 1700s. So over 300 years ago, someone was saying, like, the big question is, what is life? Ernst Schrodinger also asked the same question in his very influential book that he wrote at the end of World War II. And... So we tend to like think about life as something that that we have to define. And people try to define it with some of the hallmarks I mentioned, or they they make a sort of a broader statement about some of the features of life. And this has not gone very well because <laughs> scientists have come up with definitions and more definitions and more and more definitions. And there are literally hundreds of definitions that have been published in the, the scientific literature. There's a scientist I've talked to who has sort of made a hobby of, of adding them up. And there are a couple of scientists who were writing about this problem a couple of years ago, and they, they said, it is commonly said that there are as many definitions of life as there are people trying to define it. So there's a problem here, a deep problem, and philosophers have actually argued that it's, it's a problem that goes beyond the scientific details of one experiment or another. It's a philosophical problem about the foundations that we're trying to build a definition on. So Ludwig Wittgenstein might offer a way out. After World War II, he thought a lot about just the way we use language in general and and how we categorize things with, with words. And he used an example of games. Some people are asking, what is life? Well, Wittgenstein would say, well, what are games? How do you define games? Is there, is there some like def, just just clear cut way that you can can provide a definition that will encompass everything that we recognize as a game and push push out everything we we don't consider a game? Well, not really, because games themselves are so different from each other. Like you could say, like ah, oh, well, you you know, games involve winning money. Well, that's true for some and not others. Some games you don't win at all, and so you have this problem where it's very difficult to actually define a game, but it's not like kids are like pulling their hair out and, and it's not like they go into a toy store and they're like, what are all these things called games? I don't understand. Like everybody knows what games are and we know them more, not through sort of categorical definitions, but through what Wittgenstein would call like a family resemblances, sort of a network of similarities. And so they sort of cohere together. So each one of them may not have like the full list of things that that you find in things that you consider games, but they're similar enough that you sort of recognize that there's this sort of natural cluster of things. So maybe we just need to just say like, okay, there are these things that all share to some extent things that we consider important to life, like evolution or metabolism. And that's good enough. And this cluster will call life and it won't have sharp edges and that's okay. Other people think that just even trying to define life period is not just pointless, but harmful. That scientists just need to focus on a theory that can explain this phenomenon that, that we, refer, we refer to as life. It's sort of like asking an alchemist to define water. It's probably not 
going to lead to much that's very useful because the alchemist will say, well, water is wet. And what you really want is a theory of chemistry that says, okay, in this stuff you call water, there are these things called molecules, and they're made up of atoms, and we call some of those atoms hydrogen and some oxygen, and here's what makes them those things. And and you have that whole theory that they can then help you to understand, well, why is it that this stuff we call water expands when it gets cold and freezes? That's what we should have for life. We don't have that yet. Okay. I want to go back to evolution and what is being done to understand how life began. First of all, what are the most recent estimates about how long ago life began on planet Earth? And then what is the current thinking on that? Well, if you look at just the fossil record, you can get back past about three and a half billion years and you can see fossils that look a lot like bacteria that form layers, sometimes called stromatolites, that you can find on Earth today. So life was appears to have been at that level of organization even at that point. Bacteria are... People like to call them simple, but they're not. I mean, each each microbe is just packed with proteins and RNA molecules and, and the, the genes encoded in DNA, and they're very sophisticated in sensing their environment, and microbes communicate with each other and all the rest. So there had been a lot of evolution up to that point from the, the simplest forms that we might start to call life. This, gets, again, gets into our trouble with how we're going to use that word. But it, there's a lot of evidence that is, is leading a, more and more scientists to look at the earliest forms of life as being not based on DNA, but on RNA. You know, we've been hearing a lot about RNA these days with vaccines. Just to remind people, your genes are encoded in DNA, so this double-stranded molecule. To make a protein from a gene, your cells make a copy of that gene, and they do it in a single-stranded molecule called RNA. And then RNA is then a guide for making proteins out of a different set of building blocks. In addition, our cells will make RNA copies of some genes, and then those RNA molecules just do their own thing in, inside the cell. So RNA, the single-stranded molecule, can fold up in all sorts of intricate ways and can do things like it can sense the levels of some particular element in your cell and can kind of be a signal to have your cell respond if things get dangerous. They can silence other genes. They can do all sorts of stuff. So scientists have said, hey, like, you know, DNA, proteins, and RNA, that's a very complicated system. It's kind of a, think of it as its own kind of molecular tripod, as it were. And and so where, you know, you take one leg away and the whole thing doesn't work. But maybe that you can precede that with just RNA. So maybe life began just with RNA encoding genes and RNA also carrying out the things that proteins do today. So that's what a lot of people are focusing on. There's obviously a lot of debate still on on these issues. So what some scientists are are doing is saying like, well, let's try to make it. Let's try to make RNA life. And there are protocells that scientists are building and they, they have RNA inside them and they do interesting things. Now, the other big question is, where does life begin? And in Life's Edge, I write about one scientist who has for decades been pursuing the idea that life started 
when volcanoes emerged from the primordial oceans and you started to have little ponds forming on them as as rain landed on their surface. Because it's possible that in ponds that were filling up with water and then drying out again and filling up with water, it's kind of like a chemical reactor where you could have all sorts of interesting reactions taking place in a sort of cyclical way. And you could potentially start building up primitive versions of RNA, even without life. Just They would just start building up. And then they would start getting trapped in little sort of oily bubbles made from just the molecules that would have been already there on the early Earth. So this scientist named David Deemer at the University of California, Santa Cruz, is a real champion of this kind of life. But there are others, other scientists who profoundly disagree with them and say, no, the real action is happening, happened at the bottom of the ocean, that, that where you would have really hot uh, mineral-laced water shooting up out of the ocean floor and forming gigantic, amazing uh, sort of chimney-like structures where all sorts of crazy chemistry could take place. And that's where you could get the origin of life. These are two very different views, and, and, you know, who knows? Maybe life started in both places, and one of them won and the other one lost out. I, who knows? But it does also influence how we think about looking for life on other worlds and what the possibilities are um, when we have these two models for life here. And one has to remember that the conditions back then on the earth were very different from what they are now for one thing the atmosphere was not an oxygen atmosphere would you please talk a bit about that and how that influences our understanding of how life might have begun yeah i mean this was this kind of a realization took a while for scientists to come to it really actually wasn't until about 100 years ago that it occurred to scientists that the early Earth would have been really different than the world as we see it today. And in hindsight, it's kind of obvious, but it wasn't at the time. I mean, the fact is that life itself is such a, such a profound geochemical force that living things change the entire atmosphere. Living things also change the oceans. They, they change the way that mountains erode. They're, they're constantly changing the planet. So if you want to understand, well, how did life begin on Earth? You have to go back and think about life before there was life. Oxygen is, there's a lot of oxygen that was part of the, the planet as it formed initially, but it got taken up into molecules with other elements. Oxygen really reacts very quickly. So if you just had Earth without life, you don't have oxygen in the atmosphere. It just gets taken up very quickly by rocks and, and other things. It actually isn't until you start having life that takes in carbon dioxide and gives off oxygen as waste we think of, we think of that as plants, but also think about like photosynthetic bacteria. So you actually need this this you need life to be pumping oxygen into the atmosphere constantly to get that. So there's a lot of different chemistry that can take place on a on a planet without oxygen. And actually, when scientists are trying to run experiments to to capture some of the chemistry on the early Earth, they will create little chambers where they take out 
all the oxygen and they'll flood it with carbon dioxide because that's closer to what the early earth was actually like. And the chemistry is just totally different. And it wasn't until scientists really thought about that, that they could even begin to think about how life began on earth. Would I be correct in saying that whatever it was, the because of the state of the atmosphere at that time, the origins of life would have been primarily anaerobic as opposed to what we think of life now as being oxygen-based. Right. Well, there's there on Earth today, there are lots of organisms that breathe in oxygen, like ourselves. There are lots of organisms that give off oxygen, like plants, but they're perfectly comfortable living in an oxygen-rich environment. The oceans have a lot of oxygen in them as well, but there are places, like in the muck of wetlands, where there's very little oxygen or none at all. And so you have species that can that can live in the absence of oxygen. And in fact, if you take them out of that oxygen-free muck and try to grow them in your lab, they'll just die. And because for them, oxygen is poisonous. The same is actually true in, in some of the recesses of our gut. We have bacteria that really do not like oxygen at all. And that's perfectly fine down there because we don't have much oxygen, actually, in our large intestines. So these kinds of microbes were probably much, much more common very early in the evolution of life. So you, you would have species that were able to metabolize and do all sorts of things without depending on oxygen. But likewise, once oxygen started flooding the atmosphere, that was game over for a lot of species. They just couldn't survive. And so they had to retreat to places on the earth where the oxygen could not get to. So there's a lot to learn, actually, about the origin of life by looking at some of these super weird oxygen-hating species. The reason I belabor this point is that a common response among those who deny climate change is that it's just not possible for us to change the earth in in a disastrous way to our species. We're just small little individual animals on the planet, so that just couldn't happen. But in fact, it did happen. And at one time, there was not free oxygen in the atmosphere. But over time, these microorganisms completely changed the planet's atmosphere. I, we only have a little bit of time left, and I want to get to viruses. They defy definition of whether they're alive, half alive, not alive, and they're really on our minds these days. How would you like to begin our discussion about viruses and their place in life? Well, it's really fascinating to look at the discovery of viruses, again, about a century ago. I write about this in Life's Edge, how they were discovered and sort of dissected in a microscopic way right at the time that scientists were coming up with a kind of biochemical definition of life. And here you have these things that just totally wreaked havoc with these these neat definitions because viruses can definitely evolve. The coronavirus 
it is a champion of evolution. You know, it evolved from a bad coronavirus into something that could spread in humans very easily, and it's still evolving. It's it's continuing to adapt, and we're, these variants that we see are they're replacing earlier versions of, of the virus. So you can check that box in in the in whether viruses are alive, but they don't use any sort of metabolism. A virus doesn't wander around and eat. It doesn't photosynthesize. It just delivers its genes into a host cell, and then that cell basically gets reorganized into something that is basically a factory for making new viruses. So some scientists have said, that's it. They're not alive. They don't. They don't make the cut. While others say, no, no, they're 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 clearly like a part of the living world. And when they take over a cell, like obviously, like that cell is a new entity. And you know those debates continue even now. It's fascinating. As we get to understand viruses better, it just sort of adds fresh fuel to the debate. When an excerpt of my book appeared in the New York Times recently about whether viruses are alive or not. I got an email one morning from an expert saying, well, of course, the viruses are not alive. And any expert you ask will tell you. And then literally that afternoon, I got an email from another scientist saying, well, of course, viruses are alive. And any expert will tell you. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of like the state of things, I, I would say. That kind of captures it, that everyone is totally convinced of their view about viruses and about life and are in diametric opposition to other people i mean you just like it's just weird to think about this at at, at the heart of biology you think imagine if chemists didn't agree on what a molecule is or if astronomers couldn't define a star that's kind of where we are with with life do you take a position yourself on whether viruses are alive I think that they're definitely part of the living world. That's a good uh, way to put it, yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's the one that works for me. Yeah, I like that. You introduced a term that was new to me, our virome. Tell us about that. People are probably familiar now with the microbiome. So the microbiome is just the whole collection of microbes that our bodies are home, are home to. We're talking in the maybe 30 trillion microbes that live inside of us, roughly the same number of microbes as there are human cells in our body. It's just that microbes are really small, so your microbiome comes to like a couple pounds. Most of it's in your gut, but there's microbes all over the place, in your mouth, on your skin, in your lungs, just all over the place. The virome is your collection of viruses, and you have a lot of viruses, trillions of viruses in, in your body when you're perfectly healthy. And some of these viruses may be actually human viruses, meaning that they replicate inside of cells, but we can sort of manage them and kind of keep keep a sort of quiet truce with them. And then other viruses are called phages, which are viruses that infect bacteria, and we have lots of those, and they're constantly uh, infecting the bacteria in our microbiome and killing lots of microbes and then replicating and seeking other ones to, to infect. So it's possible that they're kind of like the lions of our internal Serengeti. 
they play a role similar to predators, like they may keep populations in balance. It's possible that if some bacteria were able to replicate too much and get to be too common, that they would go from being harmless to actually making us sick. And so maybe phages play a part in that. On the other hand, it's also possible that phages may actually themselves carry genes that they insert into their host microbes that make their host microbes actually better able to make us sick and feed off of us. So there's a lot going on inside of our bodies when it comes to viruses. We can argue if they're alive or not, but certainly our own life is very strongly influenced by them. Well, Carl Zimmer, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today on Forthright Radio and for your many decades of science writing and especially this latest book we've been talking about, Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. Thanks for having me. Our guest today on Forthright Radio has been multiple award-winning science journalist and author Carl Zimmer. His latest book is Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive, just published by Dutton. Now we honor the memory of legendary San Francisco poet, publisher, founder of City Lights Books in San Francisco, Lawrence Ferlinghetti who died just two months shy of his 102nd birthday on February 22, 2021. To quote another poet, William Carlos Williams, it is difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. In that spirit, we end today's forthright radio with poems by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, read by Lawrence Berlinghetti. Number nine. Truth is not the secret of a few, yet you would maybe think so the way some librarians and cultural ambassadors and especially museum directors act. You'd think they had a corner on it the way they walk around shaking their high heads and looking as if they never went to the bathroom or anything. But I wouldn't blame them if I were you. They say the spiritual is best conceived in abstract terms. And then, too, walking around in museums always makes me want to sit down. I always feel so constipated in those high altitudes. the World Series, and this is uh, a former World Series team, baseball canto, watching baseball, sitting in the sun, eating popcorn, reading Ezra Pound, (laughs) and wishing Juan Marichal would hit a hole right through the Anglo-Saxon tradition in the first canto. And demolish the barbarian invaders from Los Angeles. (laughs) When the San Francisco Giants take the field and everybody stands up to the national anthem with some Irish tenor's voice piped over the loudspeakers with all the players struck dead in their places and the white umpires like Irish cops in their black suits and little black caps pressed over their hearts standing straight and still like at some funeral of a Blarney bartender. And all facing east, as if expecting some great white hope or the founding fathers to appear on the horizon. 
But Willie Mays appears instead in the bottom of the first, and a roar goes up as he clouts the first one into the sun and takes off like a footrunner from Thebes. The ball is lost in the sun, and maidens wail after him, but he keeps running through the Anglo-Saxon epic. And Tito Fuentes comes up, looking like a bullfighter in his tight pants and small pointed shoes, and the right field bleachers go mad with Chicanos and Blacks and Brooklyn beer drinkers. Sweet Tito! Sweet Tito! Sock it to him, Sweet Tito! (laughs) And Sweet Tito puts his foot in the bucket and smacks one that don't come back at all and flees around the bases like he's escaping from the United Fruit Company. (laughs) As the gringo dollar beats out the pound... And sweet Tito beats it out like he's beating out usury, not to mention fascism and anti-Semitism. And Juan Marichal comes up, and the Chicano bleachers go loco again as Juan belts the first fastball out of sight and rounds first and keeps going and rounds second and rounds third and keeps going and hits pay dirt to the roars of the grungy populace as some nut presses the backstage panic button for the tape-recorded national anthem again to save the situation. But it don't stop nobody this time in their revolution round the loaded white bases in this last of the great Anglo-Saxon epics in the Territorio Libre of baseball. Pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars, whose sages are silenced, and whose bigots haunt the airwaves. Pity the nation that raises not its voice except to praise conquerors and acclaim the bully as hero and aims to rule the world with force and by torture. Pity the nation that knows no other language but its own and no other culture but its own. Pity the nation whose breath is money and sleeps the sleep of the too well-fed. Pity the nation. Oh, pity the people who will allow their rights to erode and their freedoms to be washed away. My country, tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty. History of the airplane. (laughs) And the Wright brothers said they thought they had invented something that could make peace on earth if the wrong brothers didn't get hold of it. (laughs) When their wonderful flying machine took off at Kitty Hawk into the kingdom of birds, But the parliament of birds was freaked out by this man-made bird and fled to heaven. And then the famous spirit of St. Louis took off eastward and flew across the big pond with Lindy at the controls in his leather helmet and goggles, hoping to sight the doves of peace. But he did not, even though he circled Versailles. And then the famous flying clipper took off in the opposite direction and flew across the terrific Pacific. But the Pacific doves were frighted by this strange amphibious bird and hid in the Orient sky. And then the famous flying fortress took off 
bristling with guns and testosterone to make the world safe for peace and capitalism. But the birds of peace were nowhere to be found before or after Hiroshima. And so then, clever men built bigger and faster flying machines, and these great man-made birds with jet plumage flew higher than any real birds and seemed about to fly into the sun and melt their wings and, like Icarus, crashed to earth. And the Wright brothers were long forgotten in the high-flying bombers that now began to visit their blessings on various third worlds, all the while claiming they were searching for doves of peace. And they kept flying and flying until they flew right into the 21st century. And then one fine day, a third world struck back and stormed the great plains and flew them straight into the beating heart of skyscraper America where there were no aviators and no parliaments of doves and in a blinding flash America became a part of the scorched earth of the world and the wind of ashes blows across the land and for one long moment in eternity there was chaos and despair and buried loves and voices cries and whispers fill the air everywhere Lawrence Ferlinghetti Presente Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production broadcast each first and third Wednesday of the month from the Philo Studios of KZYXNZ, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. I'm Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire, signing out for now. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.